Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. So today I am super excited because today is our 150th episode. It is also my birthday week. I didn't plan that the 150th episode would come out the week of my birthday, but I think that is even cooler, two things to celebrate this week. And I just wanted to start this episode by saying thank you to you all. I have said this before and I will say it again, but this podcast is nothing without you. At this point in August of 2023, I have been doing this podcast for three years and three months with a few breaks in between each of the four seasons. So if you have been following since the beginning, you may know that I started this podcast as a pandemic project. So around the beginning of 2020, I started making mental health content online and I actually hired a business coach and dabbed into very, very short-lived coaching. Um, But working with her and through her, she suggested that I start a podcast. And as the pandemic had just started, I was looking for something to occupy my time because I had more time on my hands, even though working in a hospital, I was going into work every day like normal. Work was literally my life and I had no extracurriculars to do outside of that. So I released the very first episode of Psych Talk on May 4th of 2020. And two weeks to the day later, I actually found out I was pregnant with my daughter. So due to that, I wasn't really sure how long I was going to keep the podcast going. But not only over the years have I received great feedback from y'all who are listening, it gives me a creative outlet a passion project and connects me with so many wonderful people. So it has continued to grow over the past three years, even though my life has become more busy and more chaotic. It's something that I always come back to, even in the times that I felt like I needed to take a break after a couple weeks, I definitely get an itch to get back to it. So recently, Psych Talk hit over 40,000 downloads, which in the podcasting world is not super large for a podcast, but it is something I am really proud of, especially because when I started, I had no social media following and really just promoted it to family and friends. Like I remember posting it on my Facebook and was terrified of what people would think. But based on my episode downloads, those numbers do put me in the top 50 to 25% of all podcasts, depending on what stats I look at. And I feel like that's pretty awesome um, for 
a single individual that's not famous, doesn't have, even to this day, giant followings compared to many people who make podcasts. According to recent podcast statistics, there are currently between three and four million podcasts. I was blown away by those numbers. Of those, only 720,000 have over 10 episodes, and of those 720,000, only 156,000 are releasing weekly episodes. So 156,000 podcasts is still a lot of podcasts, but you know, out of three to four million, I'm really blessed to be in that 156,000. For this episode, I also wanted to highlight some of the more pop- popular episodes over the past 150. Um, before I do this though, I need to note that I did change hosting platforms earlier this year. So not all my stats are currently accurate as unfortunately the stats didn't transfer when I changed platforms, but I was able to keep some of the old stats like top episodes, total downloads on my old platform and things like that. And so for what I'm about to say, I had some old stats and then did some math. Um, So here are the top six episodes because I only had top five from before I changed platforms. Uh, save so I couldn't guarantee beyond the numbers that I have here. Um, so on the sixth most popular episode I've ever done was episode 113 on forgiveness. Then next at fifth place, that sounds weird to say now that I just said it out loud. Um, but my fifth most popular episode was episode 44, which was a really early one. Um, so I'm really honored. And that was on overcoming perfectionism. Then in fourth, my fourth um, most popular episode was episode 140, which is a recent one, only 10 episodes ago, The Challenges of Being a Therapist with Dr. Ty Alonzo, um, who is just such a wonderful human being, and I'm so honored to get to call her my friend. And, you know, without TikTok, we would have never met, but now we text and voice message, and she was on my podcast and all of those things. Um... My third most popular episode was episode 72 on intrusive thoughts. My second most popular episode was episode 45, which was Radically Open Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, also known as RODBT, with Lauren Ruth Martin. And Lauren is probably one of the first creators I ever connected with on social media. And so her number two spot on this podcast is extremely well-deserved. She is a wonderful human being and so full of knowledge. I've learned so much from her. And my most popular episode to date is episode 86 on religious trauma. Um, I think that's a topic that has become really popular on social media and one that a lot of people can relate to. So I'm glad you all really liked that episode. So if you haven't listened to any of those six episodes, please go back and do so because apparently people really liked them. I also wanted to highlight some other top guest episodes that are also highly ranked um, and are some of the top guest episodes since I switched hosting platforms. So there's some of the newer episodes and they were just getting hundreds of hundreds of downloads. So episode 136, which was inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy for OCD um, with Christina Anabe. Episode 138, which was on insomnia with my dear friend, Dr. Kristen Casey. 
episode 137, Deconstructing Purity Culture with Emily Maynard. So going back to my religious trauma episode being the most popular, it makes sense why you all also really like the Destructing Purity Culture episode. Episode 133, Vulnerability, Authenticity, Healing, and Getting to Know All the Parts of Yourself with Jalon Johnson. And honestly, I was so happy to see that you all love this episode so much. If you haven't listened to it, please go back. But Jalon is one of the few individuals that I have had on my podcast who is not a mental health professional or registered dietitian. I've had a few people, um, but in recent years, episodes it's been more mental health professionals but Jalan I was on his podcast he has a wonderful story to share um he is brilliant and has so many great insights so I love that you all loved his episode and then the other one I want to highlight is also from somebody that is not a mental health professional and it doesn't surprise me that you all love this episode but it was masculinity reality tv and mental health which was episode 141 with Nick Thompson from Netflix love is blind I got a lot of feedback positively on that episode um So yeah, thank you to all my guests, the ones I highlighted, the ones that I didn't highlight. I wish I could go through, I mean, I could have, I guess, made that (laughs) this whole entire podcast episode, just going through all 150 episodes and refreshing your memory, highlighting all my wonderful guests. But thank you to my guests and thank you to everyone that continues to listen to this podcast week after week, no matter how frequent, whether you are a weekly listener you have me on your spotify or itunes and you tune in every week or really just sporadic and like to touch on the episodes that seem interesting to you this podcast wouldn't have gone on for three years without you Um, so as always if you have enjoyed it please rate review leave an apple podcast review a spotify rating because they don't have reviews um or just subscribe or share it you know this podcast like I keep saying I I sound like a broken record but truly I hope um, my gratitude for you all is coming through like I would not have continued to do this without you all and you know the ratings reviews and subscriptions really help this podcast grow to people that haven't heard it yet so with that all being said for this 150th episode I decided to do an AMA or an ask me anything The only other time I have done this on the podcast was when I was in Maine last May, May 2022, with Dr. Kristen Casey, Kristen Gingrich, Janelle Hedick, and Bobby Davis. So I asked you all on Instagram, threads, and TikTok for some questions that you wanted me to ask or answer. You asked, I am going to answer. So I'm going to answer as many as I can. I picked a handful, uh, a mix of true mental health and some other ones I thought were funny or interesting. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. So the first question I got was, well, the first question that I have written on my notes, I guess, asked about repressed or forgotten trauma memories and are they real or false? So first, I just kind of want to define what a repressed memory is. And so a repressed memory occurs when Trauma is too severe to be kept in conscious memory and is removed by repression, dissociation, or both. And then at a later time, 
It may be recalled or reappear into conscious memory. I want to make a distinction that repressed memories are different from false memories. And a false memory is when a vulnerable individual is often like coached or asked leading questions, typically by an authority figure of some point, uh, some manner, um, to create a memory that never actually occurred. So the concept of repressed memories was first developed by Sigmund Freud in the late 19th century and has been highly controversial um, in the field of psychology with researchers and clinicians still in debate to this day. So some will argue that there's not substantial scientific evidence that repressed memories exist, and others will argue that repressed memories do exist. And the hard part about this is that each side of the argument actually does have evidence to back up their stance. So one of the arguments mainly by clinicians is that repressed memories are a type of defense mechanism developed following a traumatic event. Because the memory is repressed, the individual is unable to recollect the experience and that triggered this defense mechanism and often become unaware that they have even been traumatized. The counter argument to this, though, is made primarily by memory researchers, and they claim that repressed memories don't exist, but instead the recovered memories may have simply been forgotten memories, consciously repressed, or falsely implanted, which is why I wanted to define what a false memory was earlier. So the interesting thing is both sides of the argument do believe it is possible that memories about traumatic events can be repressed or forgotten, but it's the means through which the memory becomes repressed or forgotten that is the main source of argument. So personally, I do believe that repressed or forgotten memories are real, but I don't really have a strong stance on how they become that way. It's interesting though that this question came up because I recently saw a TikTok earlier this week actually of a woman who was talking about how she was sexually abused by her father and had no recollection of it. She was living her life and then stumbled upon tapes that her father made of him sexually abusing her. So it was documented on tape, thus there was evidence it happened, even though she could not recall it initially. I recognize that is only one person and their story, but like I think that's a clear example of how we can repress or forget things related to trauma. Um, now, once again, the means through which we do that is up for debate, but I hope that answers your question. Um, yes, repressed or forgotten trauma memories can be absolutely real they could also be false they could be implanted but i don't think at least from my perspective we can deny the existence of repressed or forgotten trauma memories um so the next question is how do you handle major life changes for example changing jobs so first validate your feelings <laughs> that change is hard and acknowledge that things are changing. I think a lot of times we go into fixing mode. What can I do to fix this or not feel this? Like first validate. Yeah, this this is really hard. I think it's also really important to have realistic expectations 
about the change. So I know you gave the example of changing jobs, but whatever the change is, you know, having realistic expectation, not only about the situation that's changing, your feelings about it, how long it will take, all of those things. I'm also really big when any change is coming on trying to keep a regular schedule as much as possible. So this is including your sleep schedule, basic hygiene, movement, nutrition, because when we're stressed, we tend to fall off of our schedule, but most humans thrive on some type of routine. And if our sleep is off, our eating's off, our movement is off. And when I say off, I mean for our baseline level, that's just going to add additional stress to an already stressful situation. I think when change happens, especially major life changes, it's also important to ask for help when needed and seek out that social support if you can. Um, Working on acceptance of the change, particularly if it is out of your control. And I know this can't always happen, but it can sometimes be helpful to figure out or determine or reflect on if anything positive can come from the change. It's also important to be proactive if you know the change is coming. I know that's not always possible, but planning ahead as much as you can to reduce the stress when the change actually comes. And I think it's also important to listen to your body and rest when you can. And that may seem like a very like vague recommendation, but even good change comes with stress and you may not be able to perform to your optimal level and that is okay so you have to listen to your body give it rest so that you can manage the stress and handle the change better the next question i got is what is your favorite food um so i've actually been reflecting on this so my gut says burritos i love burritos i particularly like veggie burritos but i also don't eat burritos that frequently i also really love ice cream but I don't have that frequently because I'm lactose intolerant. And I know there's like lactose-free ice cream, there's soy-based ice cream. It doesn't taste the same. Um, So yeah, probably burritos or ice cream. The next question I got is only gonna make sense if people followed my social media or any one social media that I went on the main trip with that I already referenced because that was the last time I did an AMA. But the question is, do you wear your lobster onesie still? So for background, for people that have no idea what I'm talking about, Kristen, KBI, Kristen Gingrich, bought all five of us girls that were on the trip lobster onesies because we were in Maine. Um, And I absolutely do still wear my lobster onesie. Not right now because it's summer in South Carolina. Um, but I have definitely worn it multiple times since I got back from that trip over a year ago. I am a big fan of onesies, even as an adult. So yes, I do wear it. And yes, my husband makes fun of me when I wear it, but it's okay. I like it. Next question I got was opinions on PMHNPs in school, but realizing there are some negative stereotypes for those who don't know what that is. Um, that's a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. So I honestly don't have any negative opinions or really strong thoughts on, um, psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners. I have worked with many through my career and I've definitely enjoyed many of them. There's some that just personality wise, we didn't click and that is okay. There's going to be people in every field and discipline that I don't get along with or things like that. Um, 
and this is not exactly the same, but I work with many NPs in general in the hospital and I admire them. They're very brilliant individuals. I see an NP myself for my medical care, as does my daughter. And so I personally don't have any negative perceptions of them. I honestly haven't personally heard negative stereotypes. However, working in the medical field and just knowing the medical model, I can assume that there is some perceptions of power differential and things like that because I see that a lot in the hospital. But as someone um, who asked this question, you're in school, if you want to go and be a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, please do that. Follow your dreams of going into that career. Um, I know it's hard to kind of dismiss any negativity you get about your field. Um, usually though, any negativity or negative opinions, at least in my experience, that come about a certain field or profession is from people not in that field or profession. So you do you. Um, I don't have any strong or negative opinions to hold about psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners. They, As long as they're doing their job and serving their patients well, that's the most important thing. So the next question, which I, I put in here because it was just fun. So on Instagram, when I like took a photo of myself to ask for the questions, I was at work. And whenever I make any posts at work, hopefully my work's not hearing this. I don't do it when I'm supposed to be doing work. I do it after hours or on lunch break, I promise. Um, I turn my badge around because I don't post where I work because none of the things I do for this podcast on social media, interviews, um, con con contributions to articles, things like that are related to my job. So I don't post my job. And so I flip my badge over. So this person asked, did you put the stickers on your badge or did your clients? So I have three stickers on the back of my badge and they all come from one of my past clients in the hospital who had stickers and gave stickers to the individuals that they liked. So I felt honored that I got three of them. So, and I just keep the stickers on my badge as a reminder because working in the hospital and I've talked about this on various podcast episodes you know I don't necessarily get long-term follow-up so after my patients are gone um, I a lot of times don't know how they're doing so I just keep those stickers on as a reminder of that particular patient so the next question I got was what does it mean to identify as asexual and how can I better understand and support? So I love this question. Um, as somebody that works a lot with LGBTQ plus youth, and I know that if you're not in the community or work with the community or know and love people in the community, or even if you do, it can be hard to really know what all the terms mean, terms are changing, things like that. So generally speaking, asexual is a term used to describe someone who does not experience sexual attraction towards individuals of any gender. However, asexuality exists on a spectrum and is typically an umbrella term. Individuals who are asexual may have little interest in having sex, but still desire emotionally intimate relationships. They also may use various terms to describe themselves, such as demisexual or queer platonic. 
So as for how you can better understand and support, the first step is educating yourself on what it means to be asexual, as well as what it doesn't mean. So for example, being asexual is different than being celibate because celibacy is a choice and asexuality is a sexual orientation and thus not a choice. You can also support people in your life who are asexual by not making assumptions about the person if they identify as asexual and by listening to their lived experiences if they feel comfortable sharing because there's always a fine balance of wanting to hear and learn from someone's lived experience but and asking questions that are more you wanting them to teach you because it's nobody's responsibility who holds a marginalized status to teach non-marginalized individuals about certain things unless they want to do it. So I hope that made sense. I feel like there are a lot of resources online that may be better suited and can go into more depth on this conversation um, than I can. So the Trevor Project and Human Resources Campaign are two resources I utilize very frequently when it comes to LGBTQ health, rights, terminology, things like that. So if you go on to the Trevor Project or Human Resources Campaign and just type in the search bar, asexuality, I know they both have resources there. There's also a really good video on YouTube and it's only, it's less than 10 minutes. I can't remember if it's only like five minutes, but it's called five asexual people explain what asexual means to them and it's a really good short video to understand individuals perceptions of their asexuality terms they use what it means to them etc as someone who is not asexual i think it's important to learn from people like i said who are willing to share about their own experiences rather than me talking on something that i do not have lived experience in The next question I got was thoughts on SSRIs under 12 for off-label use in ASD. ASD is autism spectrum disorder. So I am not a prescriber, so I don't feel like I can truly weigh in on this. However, from doing a brief literature review, because I saw this question ahead of time and wanted to answer it, and I feel like I can talk from a research-based perspective. Um, So I did a brief literature review looking at SSRI use for autism spectrum disorder, and really results of clinical trials have been mixed and inconclusive and have not shown overall effectiveness in treating autism. There are some studies out there that did show some effectiveness of Prozac specifically, um, but overall the literature seems to be mixed. Now I will say if the child has comorbid depression or anxiety, that may be a different story and SSRIs may help those symptoms. However, like I said, based on the literature review I did, it seems like there's mixed evidence of any effectiveness for autism specifically. However, I can't prescribe So I don't feel like I can really have a strong opinion on this because doing so would be out of my scope of practice. And I don't know necessarily the rationale of psychiatrists who use SSRIs off-label for ASD, specifically on individuals under 12. So if any psychiatrists are listening and work in child and adolescent psychiatry and have used this and want to provide me with more information, That would be extremely helpful. 
So the next question I got was, how old were you when you started your PhD program? So I was 24, but I say that very lightly because I turned 25 like a week later. (laughs) So um, for those of you who don't know, I got my four-year undergrad degree. I graduated college at 21. I went straight into a terminal master's program. So a two-year master's in clinical psychology. I graduated that at 23. I then took a year off. Um, I did not get into a PhD program the first time around I applied. I got work, a year of work experience. I also got married that year and then um, moved and started my PhD program. So technically, I was 24 when I started, and technically, I was 28 when I graduated. Um, but as I have a late August birthday and I started in August and graduated in August, I was really like, almost 25 and almost 29, but I do like to, to claim the 24 and 28. Um, I'm, I don't know. I was going to say that's selfish. It's not it cause it's not wrong. Um, but yes, I was very close to turning 25 when I started. So the next question I got or statement says, I want to be something psychologist, neuropsychologist, cognitive psychologist, but don't feel smart enough. I graduate with my bachelor's degree in April and starting my master's in September of 2024. So first of all, congratulations on graduating and starting a master's. Um, with regard to like not feeling smart enough, I always say if you're passionate about it, go for it. Um, at least for me, it was a lot easier for me to engage in classes that I had interest in. So for example, I graduated both my PhD and my master's program with a 4.0. I promise you my undergrad GPA was not that good. And I truly think a large part of it was because I was actually interested in all the classes I was taking in my master's and PhD programs. So if you are passionate about it, if you have an interest in it, definitely go for it. I'm not going to say it's easy. Um, you know, there is some research out there if you wanted to get technical that, you know, average IQs of people that get PhDs are higher than the general population, things like this, but you know, smart in many ways is relative because people can be book smart, street smart. You can have, and I don't know, intelligence in language versus intelligence in like hands-on learning and things like that. So I would just say go for it. And if you are struggling in your programs, there are supports and assistance to help you and people that can help guide and figure out what would be best for you. So the next question I got is, do you have any tips on trying to get over a phobia about oceans? So the most effective treatment for a phobia is exposure therapy. As I say a bajillion times on this podcast, I realize that uh, mental health therapy is not accessible for so many people. So in an ideal world, you would be able to do exposure therapy with a licensed mental health clinician. I do think to some extent, you can do many exposures on your own to help you overcome your fear. Um, but I do feel like you have to be more mindful Um, when doing that, since you're not there with a trained licensed professional. So gradual repeated exposure to the ocean, the related thoughts, feelings, and sensations related to it would be helpful for you. So I don't know your current level of phobia, but you know, gradual exposure may first involve just imagining an ocean or looking at pictures 
or videos of the ocean, and then pairing that exposure with calming strategies, such as deep breathing or other somatic strategies. Once again, this is not clinical advice and I don't know your specific um, circumstances, but you know, if your heart rate increases, deep breathing can help that. If you get tense, you know, progressive muscle relaxation can help that challenging, anxious thoughts, etc. And then with regard to exposure to the actual ocean, if we're taking a gradual approach, it first may just be looking at it from a distance and then gradually getting closer to it, actually stepping on the beach then working towards getting closer to the ocean, putting your feet in, and then up to your knees, etc. Once again, pairing this with calming strategies. I am obviously oversimplifying this because if you were able to work with a mental health clinician, they would help guide you based on your specific needs. Um, but yeah, with, with any phobia, if you're listening and you have a different phobia, that's the ocean. Uh, gradual exposure to the feared stimuli paired with calming strategies is going to be the most effective way to help reduce the anxiety related to the phobia. The next question I got I thought was really interesting. So um, this person said, I find myself becoming increasingly annoyed by happiness as a choice posts. I've been diagnosed with pretty severe depression, so I can't decide if it's just the filter I see through or if this is a toxic message what are your thoughts on this so at its core i don't love the idea of the happiness is a choice message because there are many circumstances in which it is hard for people to be happy especially when the circumstances are beyond their control so i'm thinking of things like significant mental health or medical concerns severe grief uh systematic racism and injustices etc and using dialectics here. With that said, I also do feel there is some degree of personal responsibility to find happiness or positivity within things. And I hope that makes sense. And I'm going to, I guess, expand on that to hopefully clarify my point. So in dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, there are four options to solve a problem. So the first option is to solve the problem or make a change. The second option is to find ways to feel better about the situation by changing our perception of the situation. The third option is to learn to accept the problem by practicing radical acceptance. And the fourth option is to stay miserable. And many people will get upset initially with the last choice of staying miserable. But if you aren't ready to make a change, aren't ready to change your perception, or you can't accept the situation yet, we may realistically be left with staying miserable. And that is absolutely okay. So when I think of the phrase happiness is a choice, I don't fully believe it because there are so many circumstances outside of our control that can impact our ability to feel happy as well as circumstances that will just make us feel happy without trying on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So we may not be choosing to feel happy, but when we see a cute little video of a puppy on our for you page when we're just scrolling we may feel happy and didn't actively choose to feel that way and there is a piece and this does not apply to every single situation but generally speaking where we could be actively doing things to prevent ourselves from feeling happier so in the case of depression for example one of the first lines of treatment is behavioral activation where we do things that are pleasurable or rewarding even if we don't want to do them 
to activate more pleasant emotions. So engaging in those activities is a choice. We can choose to do them or not, even if it is extremely hard to do so, which is absolutely understandable if you're extremely depressed. Not choosing to do them, though, potentially prohibits opportunities to feel happier. We're actively choosing to do things, even if we don't want to, has the potential for more pleasant emotions to arise, even if that is very briefly. So I hope that makes sense. And I guess I'll try to sum it up here. Generally, I hate the phrase because it is oversimplified. It lacks nuance and it does not take into account a variety of circumstances that would make it extremely hard to quote unquote choose happiness. And to some extent, we all have personal responsibility to decide if we are going to do things that could potentially enhance our happiness, no matter how big or small. So I hope that made sense. The next question I got was, I feel like the setbacks feel so huge. How do you not let them stop you? So when I've read this, my gut instinct was self-compassion. I have talked about self-compassion a lot on this podcast. The first three episodes of this podcast were all about self-compassion. So I'm not going to dive deep into it here, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes. Go to selfcompassion.org to find out more. But basically, self-compassion is comprised of three components. So we have the self-kindness, we have mindful awareness, and we have common humanity. So look into those things. I'm not going to dive into them, but using self-compassion can really help when faced with setbacks. Um, remembering that we all have setbacks in life and that we can choose to either let them continue to hold us back or we can figure out how to move forward can be helpful. I think focusing on either our end goal or just long-term goals while acknowledging that is also okay to adjust our goals can be helpful. Um, Because for example, something may feel like a setback because the goal actually wasn't reasonable for you. So I give this example a lot about around New Year's because everybody is all into New Year's resolutions and there's so much on like exercise and health and things like that. So say you have a goal of going to the gym five days per week And so you start going and you're lifting weights or doing cardio, but you actually hate it and are miserable doing it the whole time. And then you skip a day and then you perceive that as a setback. The setback might be there because the goal was not actually reasonable or realistic for you. But in contrast, maybe you decide to go to a dance class and really, really love it because it doesn't feel like exercise to you or dance is a more enjoyable form of movement. So it's okay to like switch your goals. Um, And I think it's also important to ask yourself why you set the goal in the first place and why you perceive that thing as a setback. Because once again, that might help you identify like, oh, it's not really a setback. It's more like I hated this goal or I set this goal for another person. It might also be good to identify if there's anything you can learn from the setback and reframe that setback as a learning opportunity. And as always, it's important to validate your feelings, Um, validate that it is hard when you face a setback, but also don't ruminate and wallow in them. The next question I got was thoughts on clients sharing songs in session. I know time is limited in session, but sometimes I can connect more to music than talking. 
this is just my personal opinion, but I love when clients share songs in session. Um, it may be my bias because I work primarily with teenagers, but I have clients share songs in session all the time and it could be related to how they're feeling, or it could just be like, Hey, this new song or new album came out and I want to share it with you. But I think even though you said time is limited, that time is well used if that song is going to spark conversation or gives your therapist insight into how you're feeling, what you're thinking, etc. So I love it. And then the last question I'm going to answer, because Originally, I wanted this episode to be like a shorter one at 30 minutes, and here I am still talking at like 40 minutes. So this is the last one I'm going to answer. But the question is, what are your thoughts on therapists holding clients' hand after a client asked, after they shut down in session to help ground themselves? So how I approach physical touch is, one, it's always consensual. Two, both parties have to be comfortable with it. And three, it depends on the client and the circumstance. I have definitely held a client's hand before in session um, after slash during a panic attack because they asked and it was grounding for them. I typically approach things when it comes to physical touch as I will not offer physical touch I may ask, is there anything I can do for you in this moment? If somebody is shut down or overwhelmed, um, there are some clients that, you know, I know may want a hug at the end of a hard session that I feel comfortable hugging. There are some clients I may not feel comfortable hugging. And if you're listening to this and you're a client and you're like worried about, you know, oh my gosh, is Am I a client that my client, my therapist doesn't want to hug or does hug or things like that? It's all up to the individual therapist, your relationship, their boundaries, your boundaries, things like that. Um, there's times I've rubbed uh, clients on the back. I also think my situation may be different in many ways. As somebody that works with teens and kids, you know, kids in general are more like touchy feely than maybe like a, a 50 year old client. Also working in the hospital, I have sat through procedures with kids or kids who are in for a traumatic event and they lost a sibling or a parent. So in those circumstances, like I have definitely held hands with clients if they ask or if I say, is there anything I can do for you right now to help support you, ground you, things like that, make you feel safe. And if they say like, hold my hand or can I have a hug, I may be more willing to. So it depends on a lot of factors. Um, but if you are one that likes physical touch, when you feel overwhelmed to help ground yourself, definitely talk to your therapist about it and see what their thoughts or opinions are on it. So like I said, that was going to be the last question I answered simply because this episode is going to be closer to 45 minutes when I wanted it to be closer to 30, but you all asked some great questions. I love the balance of, you know, mental health questions, but also some fun questions and, I know I said this a million times at the beginning of this episode, but thank you all so much for episode 150, for sticking out this podcast with me for over three years now, whether you have been here since the beginning or this is the first episode you are listening to. I genuinely appreciate every single one of you. I love when you all message me, giving me feedback, share 
certain episodes that you've listened to on your social media accounts. It makes me feel so honored um, that you spend anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes listening to me ramble or listening to me having a conversation with a guest. I I appreciate it so much. And like I keep saying and will continue to say, this podcast is nothing without you all. So thank you so much for joining for episode 150. And I will see you in next week's episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.